We're glad you guys are here to uh, worship with us this morning. As we've said many times, it is always an honor to see your face in this space and that you would choose to worship with us. And I uh, have to say this because I'm biased and I'm the one with the microphone at the moment, and so I'm going to be selfish. If you see Judah after church, make sure and tell him happy birthday because today is his birthday. Uh, Graham's birthday, Duval, if you know Graham Duval, his birthday was Friday, and Mia's birthday is tomorrow, so we have a few little birthdays this weekend. If I missed anyone else's, I'm sorry, but, uh, oh, other birthdays, there you go. Okay, so you have to say happy birthday to Judah, though, and as, I want to say this, and I say all this, to, I, I'm joking about being selfish and having the microphone, although it is also true, um, Last night, Anna and I were praying over, like, just as we'd put the boys to bed, and we were laying down to go to sleep, and we were praying over Judah and his birthday, and I was just reminded of the miracle that Judah is. If you're newer to the church, and you haven't been around in the last three years, Judah is adopted, and we were just talking about how, like, we always joke and say Judah is Mosaic's baby, because, like, we wouldn't have Judah without this community, and we wouldn't have Judah without the people that gave money to it and that helped support bringing him into the family and supported us. If you were around, it happened in like two months, super fast. Uh, we got all of the money together and we had to do like triple the amount of money that we thought it was going to be and all of this stuff. And it all just happened. And a large part of that is because of this community and the church. And I say that because it reminds me of all the heartache and frustration that we may feel and experience with the community. Church hurt can be real, painful. There are things constantly in this community in the last few weeks, if you have given yourself to it, you have probably been frustrated or bothered by someone in this community. That's what happens in relationships. And I'm not trying to diminish the difficulties that some people have experienced at systemic levels and the abuse and the struggles of power that exist in the church that are being brought to the forefront. We need to name those things. We need to continue to root those things out because that is not what the church is meant to be. And we will always be honest about those types of things here in these spaces. And I'll be honest. We do not do everything right. We are not the perfect church. That's why we constantly are begging you to help us out. Because we need insight, we need wisdom that you provide that I don't have, okay? The church is meant to be Judah. The church is meant to be a group of people that come together to invite people into homes, into spaces, to love them and to raise them. And to look at that little boy three years later and to say, we did that. That that's, like, that's the product of what the church is meant to be. And we want to continue to do things like that as Mosaic. And whether that's adopt someone that is uh, being born or to invite someone that is 28 into your home that doesn't have family here in Birmingham. To be the family of faith. That's the call of Mosaic. That's the call of the local church. And that's what it is. And that's the beauty of it. Now, here's the thing is it comes with pain and it comes with struggle. If you are in family, family comes with highs and comes with lows. Judah comes with some highs and with some lows. If you volunteered in the pre-K classroom, you know what I'm talking about. He's a wonderful, bright-eyed, little, beautiful boy that is too smart for his own good already. Okay, that's, that's the reality of it. And I want to invite you into that, but I also want to say thank you for the amazing kid and the miracle that he is and the gift he has been in our lives and the honor and the privilege it is to be his father. And I look at all of you, and I know that that's possible because of what you have done for us. And I say thank you on his birthday, because you are a part of that, and you get to celebrate it with us. And I will never forget that. As long as I live, I will know that this community 
was a part of allowing us to have him and to get to experience that joy and that honor. So thank you for that. Tell him happy birthday. Give him a hug. Ann and I were in the back during worship, and we kissed him. He likes double kisses. It's his favorite thing. And I said, I love you, Judah. And he said, I love my birthday. So <laughs> there you have it. This also is relevant to our conversation in Lent and the topic of what we're covering. We're, we're two weeks out from beginning the Easter season. And as we continue to talk about these things, as we talk about wilderness seasons and what it means to find ourselves in wandering places, I'm bad at pronunciation, that's W-A-N-D-E-R-I-N-G, not W-O, and I preached a sermon one time in, in seminary and my uh, preaching professor, older black gentleman, in this deep voice, he said, Brother Miller, it's a good thing you know how to spell. <laughs> because I was playing off of wandering and wondering, and I don't do very well of uh, making that enunciation. But we are in a wandering season. And personally, I think it's this point where we start to feel disconnected from the thing. The first couple weeks of Lent, we have Ash Wednesday. And, and for those of us that slide into a season of Lent, sort of like a spiritual diet, it's probably like most of your diets that you experience in your life. Uh, if you're anything like me, I'm constantly revamping and reorganizing the way I'm going to be healthier and more efficient and all these things. And we talked about how that's the temptation in Lent. And there's these moments and these spaces where that like still kind of happens. And what naturally happens with that is you start with a good head of steam you decide all these things you're maybe going to abstain from, you're doing your fasting, and then it's Friday, spring break week, and you're driving back from Georgia, and you go, oh yeah, we were supposed to be fasting this morning. Oh yeah, like that's, we're still doing that thing. We're still participating in this season, and the normal rhythms kind of start to pull us out of it, and that's okay. When we talked about silence, and I think it holds true in a season like Lent, we said every opportunity that you sit silently before the Lord and get distracted, like, like every time that happens, it's an opportunity to teach your body to turn back to God. So if you get distracted a thousand times in prayer in 15 minutes, which is normal for someone like myself, then that's a thousand opportunities for your brain to turn back to God and to place yourself before God. And in Lent, the same thing is true. When we get distracted from what we're being called to, to submit ourselves to this purposeful and like, uh, intentional practice of placing ourselves in a wandering season, in a desert wilderness space, to remind ourselves that death is real and that we can't escape it, and that we are not the ones that are in control of our own lives, and that everything is going to eventually come to an end. When we do that, and we get distracted, what that is, is it's a reminder that this is the tension of the Christian life. We are going to find ourselves in seasons of celebrating, and we are going to need to grieve. And we're going to find ourselves in seasons of grief, because here's the reality, we're going to go into Eastertide for six weeks, and we're going to celebrate. And you're going to forget to celebrate, because things are going to get hard in the midst of that season. And we're teaching ourselves that there's this beauty in the believer that is able to hold both of these things simultaneously. That while we grieve, we can also celebrate. And while we're experiencing moments of celebration, we can be in touch with and honest about the grief that may be in us 
in the world around us, the grief we are still processing, but we do not keep that or allow that to stop us from celebrating. And simultaneously, life may be really good for you right now, but I promise you have at least three conversations this morning and you will meet someone that needs you to sit next to them and to grieve and to sorrow with them. Because grief goes oftentimes unnoticed. It's quiet. It's subtle. And you don't know what people are dealing with and processing with. And the church comes together to do this with one another. This is the beauty of a corporate body that comes. We're all in different places and we're practicing this. God was able to do this in his son Jesus to come and to hold both of these things in tension. And this is what we're doing in our season of Lent. And especially like as we move to our passage and we think, with what's going on in Isaiah 43. Quickly, they're, they're back into Jerusalem or to Israel. The people of God have been recovered from exile. And we see this moment. And what we see here is this thing that's happening. And it kind of reminds me of Ezra 3. I have the slides out of order. That's my fault, Mia. Um, I, there's this thing that's happening. I'm new to slides still. I'm trying to get a grip on these things. But at least I'm trying. Um, in Ezra 3, there's this scene where the elder people of Jerusalem that were in the exile that had seen the temple, and they finally rebuild the temple in Ezra 3, and it's coming, it's there before them. They have the celebration, and the young people are celebrating. They're excited. And the elders of the community, they're in the back, the Levites, those that had been around for a while, and they're weeping. It should be this celebratory moment, but they're weeping because they're reminded of what it once was, what it could have been, what it was supposed to be. And in this beautiful moment in the people of God, there is weeping and there is celebrating. There is grief and sorrow, and yet there is joy and excitement. And in our passage, Isaiah 43, they're not quite to the temple. They've actually just come back. Now you can throw the picture up. We'll show this. Okay, we're going to walk through this for a second. This is weirdly maybe an excursus for some of you, but I want to say this just to help us understand, okay? So in Isaiah, you have two big sections. One is Isaiah 1 through 39, and the next is Isaiah 40 through 66. Academically speaking, if you start to parse this thing out, you may hear this language, and I feel like the Bible Project poster does a good job of explaining this. There's two theories of what's going on between chapters 40 and 66, two predominant theories that most people that are Orthodox Bible-believing Christians hold to. There are multiple theories that get into four, five, six different views. But these are the main two. One is that the voice of Isaiah is transported into the future, 720 B.C., returned from exile, and somehow hundreds of years earlier, he is able to predict and to talk like what is going on in the exile and the return from it. The other view is that Isaiah passes off his prophecy of hope and of judgment that you see in 139. Isaiah would have had disciples, he would have had people that learned from him and grew from him, and they carry that message with them all through the exile and hold on to this hope that is promised in chapters 1 through 39. They return and they actually write what is happening and what's going on once they get back from the exile. This may seem weirdly academic to you, and it may seem odd that we're stopping to talk about this in the middle of the sermon. I want to say this because I think it matters for two reasons. One, if we are going to be people of the book, if we're going to proclaim that we believe that God's word is in scripture and that this is authoritative for our lives, it's helpful to understand and to know how this works and what's going on here. Two, 
if you find yourself in a space or a place where someone is going to throw the, like, like I, I call it brick throwing at the Bible, where they're like, well, you know that the Bible's not even real because, like, they say there's one Isaiah, but really there's, like, it wasn't even Isaiah that wrote the whole book of Isaiah. You go, okay, cool, like, that's fine. Because here's the reality of it. What, if you want to hold to the first option, lots of people do. I know people and love people very much that hold to the first option. I personally hold to the second option. That's my opinion. It is not a fact. You do not have to. The critique of holding to the second option and one that I'm willing to acknowledge is that it diminishes the role and the power of prophecy in the Holy Spirit. So if you say, hey, I have to, like if you hold to the second option, then what you're saying is that Isaiah couldn't see into the future. I'm not saying that. I believe that people had the ability to receive uh, a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit to see into the future and to predict something. I think it happens in other places in the Bible. And I think that it happens in our lives today. I think that that goes on amongst us, that sometimes there are these supernatural moments where the Holy Spirit does something and he imparts a word to you where you're able to see something that was going to happen. I believe it happened with both of my children. Personally, the moments of prayer, I knew they were going to be boys. Like these moments, these things in our lives, it's ha it's, people have spoken over me before. My mom believes it happened with me being a pastor. She believed that someone spoke that over me as a small child. And she never told me those words. I never knew that. And it came to fruition. So I believe this goes on. Those are examples from my life. So I'm not saying that that can't happen. I'm just saying if we're going to be academically honest, I think that the second is most likely the option. And here's the thing, is it doesn't need to get us into hand-wringing that we say Isaiah wrote this. What it's doing is if you understand ancient Near Eastern text, which this would have been one, and we're talking about things that were written thousands and thousands of years ago, it was very common and it was normative for you guys, like, 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 let's do this in modern day. It would be like Kyle and I were preaching sermons. You have a really good idea. You think it's great. And you write a blog post and we post it and we say that Mosaic said this. Well, who said it, right? Like, well, the people of Mosaic said this. There was his disciples. They, they took the words, the teachings, the things that they had learned and they carried it on with them and they said it on his behalf. This is not unique to Christianity or to Judaism. This is common in ancient Near Eastern practice. Homer, um, the, in the Iliad, things like this. Like the, we don't think that they wrote that whole thing themselves. We believe that it was edited and put together by different manuscripts, and we've pieced it together. And what we have today is something different than what Homer sat down and wrote. And yet we never go like, well, we can't attribute it to Homer. That's just the way things worked. It was an oral culture. Things got passed down, okay? We're going to move on. So what happens is in this there's this thing where they are now, whether you want to hold to the first or the second, we are now back from exile. And here's what ultimately Kyle and I would both say, and if you would talk to anybody else in this room that's gone to seminary, I think they would agree, or people that have just studied the Bible, not just seminarians. You guys, everybody has good opinions. Um, but we do think that there's some professionalism that matters. Medicine, yada, yada, yada. Anyways, so... The reality of it is, is what we have is Isaiah before us. And in God's providence and his sovereignty, he's delivered this to us. And what we can clearly tell from context and study of scripture, what we are given is this picture of a people that have returned from exile. And that's what we're going to study the text as. And that's why like, it matters, but it doesn't matter, and it does. It's a, anybody want to finish my sentence for me? A both and. Anna says that's what the mug should have said on the back, is in Birmingham as it is in heaven, 
both and. Uh, so we, we have this. The people of God have returned from exile, and they come into this space, and what unfolds in chapters 40 through 47, and this is another common trope, if you will, in the Old Testament, is a court scene unfolds. It's legal language. And what happens is the people come back to Jerusalem. They're brought out of exile. And they make these accusations towards God. The two primary accusations towards God that we see in Isaiah is that, one, he had abandoned them and was never with them in exile. And two, that he is not the God that he claims to be. I imagine here Hulk and the Avengers, a puny God, they're saying. Like, you're in any, okay, anyways, going on. Uh, there is this moment that they're accusing him of saying, you're not the God that you said you were. Does any of this sound familiar? That there is this moment where they're bringing accusations to God and they're saying, you are not who you say you are, and you have held out on us, and you have not given us the things that you said you were going to give us. This is the garden narrative all over again. This is the sin of God's people that gets repeated again and again and again all throughout Scripture. And as we've talked about already in this series, it is our sin that we repeat again and again and again. We are making the accusation, you are not who you say you are, and you are holding out on me, and you are not giving me the things that you promised. You didn't actually do the thing you said you would do. And this is what they're accusing God of. And so then the chapters unfold, and God says, well, like, actually, that wasn't me abandoning you. That was your punishment, because I needed to get your attention. And they, the people of God in chapter 47 actually come to the right conclusion and they believe that God did punish them and that they deserved it. And they come back to say, okay, then we will follow you. But as the story goes, we know that that doesn't happen. And then in the following chapters, what we see is, that, is this moment, and, and these are the chapters of Isaiah you're more familiar with, and you get the suffering servant or the messianic servant of Isaiah that we love to read about during Advent and Christmas season. Because what Isaiah is telling them is though you've come up with the right conclusion, though you've come up with the right answer, you're going to fail. And it's going to take someone or something to come in and to break this up and to do this completely different and to make something wholly different and wholly new. And our passage in chapter 43 is kind of hinting at this. It's scratching at this because it's starting with, in verses 16 and 17, is a recalling or a retelling in a vague way of the story of the exodus out of Egypt. The seas parting, the one who made a way, the path of the mighty waters, the chariots and horses that never were to rise again. This is Pharaoh's army and the crossing of the Red Sea. What God is, or what the people are recognizing, what Isaiah is saying about God, is that God is the one who delivers from slavery in Egypt and brought about the Exodus, and God is the God that brought you out of exile. This is the one and the same God. It is who He has always been and who He always will be. He is good, the one that He says He is going to be. But they're mad about it. And I think maybe you kind of would be too. Because it's this cycle. It's this thing that's always happening. And they're going, okay, yeah, well, like, is this just a, the rhythm we live in? Is this just the pattern that we go in? Are you really going to be who you said you could be? 
Yeah, we get that you can do that. We get that you're capable of that. We've experienced it. But like, for what? Just to come to this place that is desolate? That's been devastated? To come back to a place where we're still the mockery of nations? That no one around us actually believes in you? Is this even worth it? I think that they're valid to ask that question, and I think most of us, whether we're honest with ourselves or not, in some way have probably asked that question about following Jesus. Maybe your sin isn't the same as the people of Israel, but you've asked that. Like, is this a cycle? Is this just... Is this just a thing where I kind of repeat over and over and we go through this again and again? Or maybe it's watching the, the corporate church and the devastation that we have seen, the honest and real and necessary calling out of the devastation that we've seen. And maybe you ask yourself, is this just a pattern and a cycle? Is this thing even good? Is it even worth it? And God's response in verses 18 through 19 is, to forget these things. Now there's a tension here, as there always is in Scripture, at least if I'm talking about it. But I think that's real. Um, I have a professor that hold, wrote a whole book called Living Intention, so uh, that's where I get it from. Blame Doug. There's all sorts of places in the Old Testament where God calls his people to remember, to retell, to recall his goodness, his mercy, the things that he's done for his people. So he is not telling them to forget that. So, like, we can't mix that up. And I think there's a temptation, especially, that it isn't as in vogue today, but there's a small temptation in certain circles of Christianity to kind of do this. And we sort of say, like, well, we don't really need the Old Testament. Like, that's, yeah, we have it there. It helps. It gives a good background to the New Testament. And sometimes there's even a, a branch or a sect of Christianity here and there that will sort of say, like, we don't even really need the New Testament. Like, we can just move on. Like, we need to forget the old things. God is doing all these new things. That's not exactly what he intends for us to understand here. God longs for his people, and we say that on Sunday mornings again and again, that part of what we're doing here, and the way I understand best what is happening in this space, is we are a group of people that are coming together to recall and to retell and to remind and to recenter and restory our lives around the good news of Jesus Christ and what God has been doing amongst his creation and his people for thousands of years since Jesus and the resurrection and for the thousands and thousands of years before that for all of creation he's been entering into the mess and into the story and doing something with his people and we need to like do that we need to tell those stories and we need to tell our own stories as I did this morning of the way God is faithful to us and we need to be reminded and we need to to like retell that to one another so that we hear it and are remembering those things. But we do not do that for two things. One, we don't do it so that we can expect God to move in that exact way again. That's not the point of doing that, though he may because it's his prerogative and he can choose to act however he wants. And we do not do that to just think to ourselves, and I think this is the deeper trap that a lot of us fall into, is that we think that if we come and we do that, then, well, then that should just be enough. And we kind of move on, and we go, well, like, even if nothing's ever better than what God has already done in my life, that's great sentiment, and there's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that sentiment, and there have been moments I have felt that in my bones. Like, I'm, I'm trying to get to gratitude. 
I'm trying to get to gratefulness. And I go, even if God doesn't do anything more than he's already done, like he's done enough. But the reality of it is, is that is not the God that I see in Scripture. And it's dishonest with who he is. Because what Isaiah 43 is trying to get us to understand is, yes, it's true. Yes, I'm a God that will deliver you. Yes, I'm a God that will do this again. You screw up and I will make a way. That is who I am. And that's what he promises in verses 20 and 21. Even in the wilderness, even in the chaos and the disorder, understand in the Hebrew mind, you start to hear these languages, wilderness, desert, all of this. This is chaos. This is ungodly space. In creation, this is a beautiful thing. This is a side note, but connected. In creation, what God did not do is he did not ban chaos. Or in the beginning was the word, the the spirit of God, and it was hovering over the waters in the deep. This was, and it was void, and it was empty. These are chaotic, godless language in the mind of the Hebrew. God did not take that and get rid of it. He put it in its bounds, and he ordered it, and he set it in its right place, and he said, this is where you belong, and this is where this belongs, and he put it all in this way, because that's how big he is. That's how good he is, that he can control even the deep waters that are void of goodness and mercy and chaos. And he says, you belong here. And in this, what we see is in Isaiah 43 is a calling back to that, that God is so good that even in these spaces, he can make a way and he can bring goodness out of it. So wherever you find yourself, wherever you are currently at, whatever you're feeling, the reality of it is, is that God wants to do something there, not just what he has done. So the reality of it is, is what we do in our response. The reason we recall and we retell and we recenter and we restory and we do all the re's is because not that that's enough, but because it allows us then to remember to look for what God wants to do now, here, tomorrow, Wednesday. To step into and to go that we believe in a God that is on the move, that is alive and that is active, that is participating still in the mess of humanity. That a God that still wants to get his hands dirty and be incarnate, that still wants to speak to his people, that still wants to invite his people into love and to mercy and to grace and to call them up and in to what he is doing in creation. This is the God we serve. And so he's not saying forget in terms of like completely forget and never think of them again. He's saying, don't hold on to just that. Don't you see that I want to do something more for you? Don't you see that I'm a God of abundance and of goodness? And that that's not all that the story is. The story is not just that I would deliver you into nothingness. The story is that I am present with you, alongside of you, walking with you and delivering you into all that I intend for you to have. And this isn't prosperity gospel. This isn't like, oh, well, if we do everything, we'll get all of that we want. This isn't this idea that, well, if I'm just faithful enough and righteous enough and I believe hard enough, that then all my dreams and wishes will come true. It's a story of submitting to a God that intends for us to operate in the spheres of delight and of joy. And redefining and re-understanding what that means in accordance with Him. Because if the great sin that we continue to live out over and over again is that God is holding out on us and that he is not who he says he is, 
then what we need to do, the anecdote to that is trusting that God is actually God and submitting our lives over to him, trusting that his definition of good and evil is the one that we should align our lives with. And if we do so, then our life will be richly blessed and that we will find enjoyment and that we will find goodness and, and fun in the world enjoy in the world and sometimes the difficulty is is that it's not always feeling like the case because as I started with grief is real pain and struggle is real and for many of us in this space that struggle with different types of emotional and mental anxieties and disorders and and real mental health issues for those of us in this space that have experienced real actual traumatic grief in their life And that pain and that darkness lives with you constantly. Every time you feel like you've kind of gotten past it and you quiet yourself, it creeps in and it creeps up. What God is promising you is that there is joy for you. There is abundance for you. And he wants to continue to do new things and powerful things in your life. And all the creatures understand this of the creator as they submit themselves to what they're called to be and to do and God's promise is that even in those dark places there is joy there's goodness there's provision from him and he longs to do new and wild and extravagant things this is something I think we drastically miss about God one of the great travesties I don't know if this is a modern mind but it is true of us in our modern era I don't know when this happened or how it happened, but we have domesticated a wild and free God. We have taken a God that is bigger than our imagination and our understanding. I think it's probably gone on since the start of humanity because honestly you see it all through the prophets. You guys have heard me talk about this ad nauseum, that when the prophets ask for God to rip apart the heavens, to render the skies, What they're asking is for him to rip apart their understanding of who God is and what he can be. And to bring something new. This is Jesus with new wineskins. This is Jesus with sowing a new patch on an old cloth, right? Like this is what we're talking about here is a whole new way of being. And they're asking that God would do this among them. And that he would continue to do it. Because the reality of it is, is no matter what containers we have or what understanding we have, It will never be big enough to completely understand God. So that does not mean that you should not have some categories and some ways of trying to place a knowledge around. I gave three and a half years of my life to doing that at a graduate level. But the beauty of it is, is you read constantly. I referenced Doug, I'll tell, this is off the cuff, I referenced Doug, and he would always tell us, he's in his 60s, the man has been preaching and has written more books than, like, he forgets more information than I will learn in a lifetime, okay? And he will tell us regularly, I got to be in his mentor group, that he was like, I think I'm finally really starting to figure the gospel out. Just in his 60s, like, he's like, I think I'm just starting to kind of settle into who God is. In one sense, that's terrifying. In another sense, it's really, really like grace-giving. And it brings peace to me because I'm like, good, because I definitely don't have it figured out most of the time. But that's who God is. That's how big he is. That's what he's inviting us into, that he's constantly going to be revealing, to him, revealing himself to us anew and afresh. 
I was reading in a parenting book this week. I was listening to it, I'll be honest. I, I, I tease people. You weren't reading, you were listening. They are different, but you consumed the contents of the book regardless. I was listening to it. And in the book, they were talking about being a playful parent and the need and how important it is. And that that's probably, he says, of all the things we miss, we probably miss the need to be playful. And he talks about it with God. And I was thinking, and he references this, and I've thought a lot about this in context with this passage of God doing something new. He talks about the prodigal son story. We all know the prodigal son. And I I put what I found to be my favorite definition of prodigal up. But it is wastefully extravagant. You know the story of the prodigal son. The, The youngest son asks for his inheritance and he goes and he wastes it. Well, Dr. Dan Allender says that the real twist of the prodigal son is that he's not the only prodigal in the story. That the even more so of a prodigal than the son is the father. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Because then I was like, well, what does prodigal actually mean? And this is when I went on my definition. I stopped listening. I started looking up. Well, what does prodigal? Maybe I misunderstood what prodigal meant. And I was like, no, I got it. Prodigal means wastefully extravagant. Spending unnecessarily, unable to hold on to resources. And he said the real twist of the story that Jesus is trying to get us at in Luke's gospel. The son is prodigal, sure, but the father is the real prodigal. He wastes his riches and his blessings on his children. And he does so willingly. And Jesus' whole point of that is that that's who God is. And I was like, what? Wastefully extravagant on me? On us? Our creation? Who we are as a people? That is who God wants to be to us. He wants to surprise us. He's wild. He's free. And we spend so much of our time trying to put him in boxes that are this or that. And then we want to put everyone else around him in those same boxes. You are this or you are that. You are either or. You tick these marks or you don't. And we try to understand and put everyone off. And just so you can get the connection, he was saying that you should not do that to your children. Surprise your children. Bless your children. Overwhelm your children. Have food fights with your kids when they're least expecting it. One of the quotes, here, I have it on the screen. I skipped it. I think I went out of order, but with the parenting, to the degree that your kids can predict you, they'll dismiss you for older children. I think this is true that we have done with God. We attempt to predict what God is going to do and who he is, and the result of that is culturally and collectively we dismiss him even though we don't want to. Isaiah And the season of Lent is inviting us to see a wild and free God. A prodigal and playful God. That longs to lavish on us good things. That longs for us to operate in the spheres of joy and of delight. He wants to invite you into that. That is not a boring God. God that we can debate on Twitter. That is a God that will constantly overwhelm all and with wonder.
the two plays off of each other. That's who our God is. Communion. We celebrate a God that was wastefully extravagant with his goodness and his mercy. That wants to meet us where we are again and again and to do new things. And to invite us into all sorts of things of joy, of wonder, of, of life and abundant, eternal. This is who God is. And we most know that by his greatest declaration and revelation to us, which is through Jesus Christ on the cross. That he shed his blood freely. Not with any necessity like, or expectation that we would all turn a bended knee, right? Like he didn't say, I will do this if. He said, I will gladly do this so they can. There's a fun theological phrase that I've always enjoyed that helps me understand English better. And that is that the, the indicative precedes the imperative. When we come to the table, when we come to this moment, what we are doing is we are coming because of who we are. We return to the prodigal father because we are his children. Not because of anything we've done. The story tells us that we've actually screwed it up. The story of Isaiah is that you guys are going to get it wrong, and yet he is still going to do the thing he promised to do. We come and we confess our sins, not because it is necessary, but because in light of understanding who God is, we are heartbroken over our own misgivings. I love the line, and we stole this from the original confession from the Book of Common Prayer. But forgive us for the things we have done and left undone. When we miss out on this wild and free and prodigal God, there's so much that we leave undone that would bring a captivated and waiting world into the goodness and the glory of the gospel, and yet we don't partake in it. We leave it to the wayside because we're looking for God to operate in the ways that we think he should, in the boxes that we have put him in. Let your boxes, dare I say, be deconstructed, okay? Let your boxes be ripped apart. It's okay. You don't need to hold on to them because God is good to meet you exactly where you are. If you have fears and short giving or misgivings about who God is, that's okay because then it probably wasn't big enough to hold who he wants to be to you anyways to begin with. Allow God to overwhelm you. Don't run from it. Stay right there in the midst of the chaos because that is where God wants to nourish you and meet you and speak to you because we believe that God is speaking to each and every one of us today and that he wants to do new and exciting things in your life. Give yourself to that. That's the real beauty and call of Christianity. Not figuring out which boxes to tick, which rules to follow, what makes us in and out, but opening ourselves up to the wild and free, beautiful, magnitudous nature of who God is. It's bigger than we could ever think or imagine. And let yourself be surprised and overwhelmed by all the ways that he wants to meet you and bring beauty and joy and delight into your life. And as we do something like communion that we do weekly to recall and to retell and to recenter and to remember, come and take the elements. And as the band can go ahead and come back up, hold on to those elements. Be overwhelmed by what they represent 
God's extravagant and wasteful love for you. And maybe that bothers you that I would say God on the cross. Good, let it bother you. Be bothered by the idea that God would long to waste his goodness on you and find delight in you. And that he is not hoarding resources or any kind of grace that he wants to lavish them upon us and give us a land that we can delight in. That is who God has always been and it is who he wants us to see him as, as much as we can. And then as you see that, let it be wrecked and shattered again and again. Be consistently and continually overwhelmed by who God is. So as you come, ask the Lord to show you that. Ask the Lord to show you the places this week, today, that you need to see him anew and afresh. Ask the Lord the ways that you are holding on to small ideas of him that were good and necessary to get you to where you are today that he now wants to tear apart and rip asunder that would allow you to see him even bigger and larger and more beautiful than you saw him before you walked into this space today. Ask the Lord as you hold on to those elements today and the band plays this next song. Ask him the ways that you could see him move this week in your life. Ask him to show you the ways that he is making a way for you where no way is possible. Ask him to show you and to move in the areas of your life where you need him to move. To provide drink where you are thirsty. To provide provision where you are hungry. To provide rest where you are weary. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the thing that the Holy Spirit does, which is overwhelm you with grace and mercy. Open yourself up to a playful and prodigal God this morning. As you hold on to the elements, the band will play. I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the receiving of those elements. We have gluten-free bread over here if you need that. But just come, tear a piece of the bread off, hold on to the cup, and I'll take us through that after the band plays this song. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.